Now this morning, I'm returning to the series on the Sermon on the Mount, and my series title is The Greatest Story Ever Told. And that's to remind us that behind this teaching lies a wonderful unfolding plan, an unfolding story, where Jesus is the center focus. He is the great hero of this story, and the one who is teaching these things is the one who is the living, moving, breathing manifestation of God upon this planet. The one who knows the Father so intimately that it's right for us to call him his beloved son, his unique son. And the one who came to teach these things is the one who not only practiced them, but lived them to the point of fulfilling them by his death on the cross to show God's love for us and to bring us into the blessing of God so that we would know what it is to walk in life and abundance. And Jesus sets out for his disciples, those people who believe in him, who are in the kingdom of God, who are saved already, but how we can enter more deeply into the kingdom and enjoy the good things that God has and the good that God is. My title is Mercy Without Judgment. We're living in a growing culture of blame and shame and judgment. But God's mercy has triumphed over judgment. Everything that we have, we owe to the loving kindness of God, his mercy shown to us in Christ. And this mercy so shapes our lives and makes us become the most generous, merciful, and the least judgmental people on the planet. At least that's the plan. Wouldn't it be wonderful if of Kensington Temple, London City Church in particular, the men and women of the wider community would say of us and also all followers of Jesus Christ, you know what, I may not agree with what they say, but what they do is amazing. See how they love one another. Look, they understand. They are not judgmental. They don't judge. They, they embrace. They help those who are in need. And uh, they don't criticize. And they are so, so forgiving. Sadly, we are far from that. That's why we need to give our attention to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Then James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Did you notice that phrase, judgment is without mercy, or judgment without mercy? And I've reversed it now because that the positive is mercy without judgment. Mercy without judgment. Some years ago, we got together as a, some of the staff members that we were traveling all the way from London in a hired little minivan, uh, from London all the way to North Wales, Prestatton, the Rio de Janeiro of North Wales. And um, on the journey, we had a long journey, we're stopping off, some were chatting, some were listening to music, some were having a nap. One of the staff members, one of our most zealous staff members, began to edge his way forward in, in, the, in the van to, to put himself just 
behind and next to the driver. And he began to share Jesus with the driver. And to listen to him was most interesting. He told this story. He said, you know, there was a woman, an old woman, and she went to the beautician. And the young therapist there in, 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 the, beautician, in the beauty shop, said, he said, she said to him, young man, I want you to do me justice. And as she sat down, he went to get all the lavish creams that he was going to apply to her needy face. He said, lady, you need mercy, not justice. <laughs> William Shakespeare picks up on one of the most frequently quoted parts of his poetry and, pray, and uh, plays from The Merchant of Venice. I don't know if you studied it, this at school. I had to go back in my mind to that time when we looked at this in uh, secondary school. The quality of mercy speech. It's given by a character by the name of Portia, and this is a very extravagant play. It's uh, exaggerated in many ways, a bit of a comedy in many ways. And uh, so Shylock is the mean moneylender, payday loan guy, you know. And he sent, he's lent money to Antonio so that Antonio can lavishly court Portia. Anyway, he can't pay, and now the penalty for not paying was not normal. It was, it was a very special clause in the contract. If you can't play, I'll take a pound of your flesh. Antonio couldn't pay, so Portia disguises herself as an advocate and starts to plead for the defense. And during that Act 4, Scene 1, in The Merchants of Venice comes this speech. Let me read some of it to you. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Though justice be thy plea, consider this that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. Well, we can see the Elizabethan language coming out and King James Version appearing here and allusions to it. One of the most famous and powerful speeches concerning mercy. Now, we're coming to this particular beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they will receive mercy. And I thought it was good to remind you of three things about these beatitudes, the blessed attitudes. First of all, there is a pattern and there's a promise. And thirdly, there is a progression. The pattern is very simple. There's a, a statement of blessedness. Blessed are, in this case, blessed are the merciful, and then the particular quality that is blessed, the merciful, and then how they are blessed, they shall receive mercy. Now, the promise throughout all of this is outstanding. 
And I think we miss it because we just repeat it. It's very repetitious. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the merciful. But it's important to know what Jesus is doing in part of the bigger picture. He is going back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. In the last passage of Deuteronomy, there there are great pronouncements of blessing and curses for obedience, blessing for obedience, Mount Gerazim, blessing or, or curses for disobedience, what will happen and the harm that will come to you if you turn your back upon God and bring upon yourself the consequences of disobedience, the curses of Ebal. But Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 in particular says this, God speaks and he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Choose life that you and offspring may live. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, this is the blessing, the blessing that leads to life, life enriching blessing, life fulfilling blessing, the fullness of life. This is what I have for you in the kingdom of God. Learn to walk in such a way that you enjoy that blessing, you experience that blessing. And here's how to get it. Each of the Beatitudes show you the attitudes which are blessed and which will shape your life for, for good and and. Positivity, And it's not that this means you will have an insurance policy against anything or difficulties, no. But you will have his living, life-affirming presence. You will walk in life through life's experiences. Several times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows there are two ways. In fact, two trees later on, he says, uh, two doors, a narrow door and a a broad door, uh, and two foundations that you can build on. And all the way through, he's saying, look, here are two ways. If you go this way, it's going to lead to difficulty, pain, and ultimately destruction. It's the way of death. But this way is the way of life. And he says, choose life. Now then, so there is pattern here. There's a promise and also progression. Everything flows from the first beatitude. I encourage you to go back over these sermons. They're all online and where you can build on that and revisit it so that this becomes so embedded in your heart, internalized in your life. The progression, everything flows from this first beatitude and it progresses after that. Poverty of spirit is the starting point because you've renounced your every claim on God and that you know that in yourself you have nothing to offer God. You are totally bankrupt. Because of that, you go on to to mourn. And this is spiritual mourning. It's not a human emotion as such. It's not a human-centered. It's not being sorry for yourself. It's being sorry for your sin, for having offended God. And that leads you to a stage of humility and and gentleness in your interaction with others, which will then all the more uh, excite your appetite for true righteousness, hungering and thirsting for it. And then you come to this beatitude, This will shape you in such a way that you will become loving and forgiving and compassionate in your relationships. In other words, you will learn to be merciful. 
Now, we do live in a vindictive culture. In particular, we think of the cancel culture. There's no forgiveness, no redemption. She might have somebody who foolishly, years and years ago, in some stupid, immature, adolescent tweet, said something which goes against those who wish to highlight the divisions amongst us. And that person can grovel before the cameras. They can tweet as much as they like. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I know better now. Is there forgiveness? No. No forgiveness. No redemption. And this should not be so amongst us. We have received God's mercy. And therefore we should be merciful. And it should be the most natural thing that flows from us. We should learn what it is to put aside our own ego and our natural human reactions, which is to do others before they do us. You know, uh, some, somebody says, you know, I, I, I don't forgive, I, I, I get even. I get even. Somebody says, I forgive, but I will never forget. I tell you, friends, that's not the spirit of the kingdom of God. And as subjects of the kingdom, we should be exhibiting this in such a way, individually and corporately, that society looks at us and says, do you know what? One thing we've got to say about those people is that they are loving and forgiving and non-judgmental. I suggest to you that we need a 180-degree turnabout on this because my understanding is, my impression is, when they look at us, they don't see that. They see the opposite. Don't go near those evangelical Christians. They're the most unloving. They are the most hateful, toxic people ever. We've got a long way to go, so let's, let's, let's get into it, shall we? So, it begins with the grace and mercy of God revealed to you in Christ. So many references and promises of this and allusions to it in the Old Testament. I mean, I just checked out online all the references to mercy and I could be here a long time just talking about each and one of those and maybe you, you could do that and pick up some of the references that I'm talking about here. But one in particular, Psalm 103, a great psalm, verse 4, says, the one who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The crowning blessing of your life is God's steadfast love and mercy. And so we should be saying, God, I want more of that. And he says, good, you can get it. How? He says, the merciful receive mercy. Mercy. Grace and mercy are twins. They're not identical twins, but they're very similar. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. That's the blessing of God. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. That's the judgment of God. And we depend entirely on this mercy. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 shows that the beginning of our life as believers 
the origin of our faith, the origin of our spiritual life, is the mercy of God. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, think about that. We spoke earlier a whole message on being born again and showed that this is not something you do to yourself. You didn't cause your first birth, your natural birth. You don't cause your second birth. God is the cause. God's mercy brings it to your life. He causes you to be born again. And if he didn't, you would still be dead in your sins. And it's that miracle that we need. You can't convince somebody that has not received the born-again experience, you can't convince them of the truth of the gospel. You can argue and persuade, and God could use that to awaken them, but they must be awake before they can see. Without being born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven, but God has given it to us. He's been so good to us, so merciful, and that's like a once-for-all experience where we come under the realm of God's grace, under the covering and protection of his mercy. But we need to experience that mercy and his grace. We need his grace every day. We need fresh grace today. His mercy is on you every morning. That's how life is lived. It's not lived at a point in time. It's lived in the process of time. And every day we need to depend on God for his grace and his mercy to enjoy more of him. And so we need more grace. James recognizes this in his book 6 to 7, James chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, says that God gives more grace. That's wonderful. How many people need more grace? All right, let's hear it. More grace. grace. At home as well, more more grace. We need more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So here's a hint that we need more grace and mercy uh, and a hint as to how we get it. But realize this, that the mercy and grace he showed us at the beginning continues every day of our lives. And if God were to lift that completely, we would crumble and die. But God says, no, by my mercy and grace, I save you. By my mercy and grace, I keep you. We are depending upon Jesus Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest, to continue to pour fresh grace, fresh mercy in our lives every day. Receive it now wherever you are. You need grace. There is a time of need that happens to us all every day. We need grace. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this, verses 14 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help, find grace to help in time of need. I was reading through this. I saw something for the first time. It doesn't say, go to the throne of grace. It says, come to the throne of grace. This is God's invitation. He's waiting for you right there. He's waiting for you, whoever you are, to come 
to the throne of grace, to draw near. Those of us who are believers, we know that we can do this confidently because of the blood of Jesus that has opened the way. But those of you who are yet outside of this experience, we invite you to come in and to enjoy it and to say, yes, today, I will listen to Jesus' invitation. I will draw near to him. How? By trusting in his blood. And you say, well, that's strange. Are we, we've suddenly gone to the butcher's shop. No, the blood of Jesus cleanses from every sin. It's the atonement, the blood of atonement. It speaks of the sacrifice that Jesus made in which he carried your sins. And now, as he stood in your place on the cross, he died the sinner's death. He was judged for your sin. You can live the life of Jesus as you draw near to him. So, very clear from Scripture, there are certain qualities, certain behaviors that attract God's mercy. And there are others where God says, all right, you, you behave like that. I, I'm, just, I, I'm not going to hand you my mercy on a plate in this situation. You want to do it yourself, get on with it. But when we come to him and say, God, no, no, I come in humility I come in repentance and faith, and I, I come in humble dependence on you. You're a candidate to receive more mercy, fresh mercy in your life. If you walk in forgiveness and forgive others as God has forgiven you, you are a candidate to receive more mercy. If you have compassion on others who are in need, be merciful, acts of mercy. And there's a lot of it needed today. The people have been homeless. People who have lost their income, families who are struggling, people who are suffering from everything from bereavement to long COVID, people who are stuck in their homes. We need to have acts of compassion because the compassion that God has upon us over, overflows to others. That's being merciful to others. I want to choose just two of these, forgiveness and compassion. Two of these ways of how we can receive more mercy and enjoy God's blessing of mercy in our life. Forgiveness and compassion. Forgiveness, first of all. Now, let, let me just take a story from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. It's the story of the unmerciful servant. Do you remember the story? Uh, Peter, one day, feeling very, very big, big-hearted, I don't know what occasioned it. Perhaps he'd just been kind to somebody. Maybe he said, you know, somebody, look, that person deserves for me to bless them with a brick, but I blessed them with a 10-pound note. Aren't I wonderful, Jesus? By the way, Jesus, what would you say? How many times should, should we forgive our brother? Up to seven times? And he thought he was being very magnanimous. That was way outside of the of the restrictions of the day, the legal restrictions of the day, that I'm going to be very generous. Not three, but seven times. And Jesus said, no, Peter, not seven, but 70 times seven. Meaning, there's no limit to it. Imagine this, having that kind of forgiveness, even for three times. So here we are, you're in the office, somebody says, oh, I, I just need to pop out, can I borrow your car? So you say, okay, here are the keys. They go out half an hour later and said, oh, I, I just had a little accident. I've, I've, I've just dented the front, front part of your car. And you go, ah, I forgive you. 
Half an hour later, oh, I just got to go around the block, go go somewhere else, can I borrow your car? They come back, oh, I've just dented the other side. Oh, I, I forgive you, I forgive you. Three times. Seven times. 77. If somebody came back with 77 dents in your car on a single day, the, the car wouldn't be the only thing that was dented. <laughs> That's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. So he tells a story about forgiveness. Here we have somebody who is in a company working for a very wealthy chief executive officer. And um, this person working for the company has got himself into huge debt. Huge debt. And he owes the chief executive officer, he owes the, the company, I mean, millions. Jesus describes it as 10,000 talents. If you had one talent, it was worth so much, it was the highest unit of weight and currency. And if you had just one, you'd be a very wealthy person. And, and, and this person owed 10,000 talents. Now I went online and compared, and it, it runs from millions to billions, so I don't know. But let's put it in a way that we can understand it today. 10,000 talents is 20 years wages multiplied by 10,000. One talent is 20 years wages. 10,000 talents is 20 years wages multiplied by 10,000. You would have to work for 200,000 years before you could pay that debt back. Or to put it another way, 60 million days work. And he said, give me more time. <laughs> there was not enough time for his life to pay this back. It was an unpayable debt. And so he threw himself on the mercy of his debtor, or, or, of his creditor, and said, okay, the man said, okay, I, I, I forgive you. Now, going from that interview, feeling really pleased with himself, he just got off this huge debt. And he meets one of his colleagues. He says, oh, by the way, you owe me 100 denarii. A denarii was a day's work. Pay for a day's work. That's 100 days' work. And the man said, I can't pay. Give me time. And you could work off uh, a debt, you, you know, of that order, six to 8,000 pounds, whatever it might be. You could work that off over a period of time. But the man didn't give him any time. And he threw him into prison until he paid. And when the chief executive officer heard about this, he was furious. And he brought him into the office and said, I forgave you this huge debt. Should you not have had mercy on your colleague? And the chief executive officer was so furious that he said, I'll throw you into prison and you won't get out till you've paid. You know what that was? A life sentence. There was no way he could pay it. It was a life sentence. He was sentenced to life imprisonment because he refused to forgive. Do you know that that could happen to you? That the whole of your life can be thrown into a kind of prison 
because of unforgiveness. The theme of forgiveness is very, very strong. I've seen cases where people have come finally to stand before the one who has so wronged them or wronged a member of their family and say, I, I, I have to forgive you. Well, I'm very grateful. No, I have to forgive you. Not for your sake, for my sake. For my sake, I have to forgive you because this unforgiveness, this bitterness is eating me up. It's destroying me. I need to be set free from this prison. Corrie Ten Boom, many of you know I've referred to her on a number of occasions. She is the author of that book, The Hiding Place. Corrie Ten Boom, along with Betsy, her sister, and others in the family, during the time of Nazi occupation in Holland, worked for the Dutch resistance and rescued Jews by hiding them in their home. Finally, they were found out, sent to prison. The father died. Betsy ultimately died. Corey finally was released. But first, she had to go from solitary confinement to harsh prison conditions and finally to the concentration camp Ravensbrück. Finally, when she was released through a clerical error just before she was due to be sent to the gas chamber, she came out of that experience and said, God, you have to help me. I, I can't live with this bitterness. Please help me to be a forgiving person. And she got there. And this is what she wrote from her experience of learning to be merciful and forgiving. Forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It is a power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. Mind you, she was tried and tested on this on several occasions. There are various stories, including this one, when she was leading a meeting, Christian meeting, and afterwards a man came up to shake her hand, and she recognized him instantly as one of the cruelest guards that had so treated her and her sister so harshly. And her sister died under those experiences. And she said, all the hatred loomed up on the inside of me. And I said, God, I can't forgive this man. I need your help. Then she got it. And this is what she wrote. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. Do you believe that? Have you experienced that? What we're talking about is so counterintuitive, it goes right against our nature because when people hurt us, we want to hurt back. We want to be the investigative officer, the prosecuting officer. We want to be the judge and the jury and the executioner. We want justice. But remember, <laughs> you need mercy, not justice. Compassion. For this story, I want to focus on the well-known parable of Jesus, the Good Samaritan. Do you remember him? First of all, he was an unlikely protagonist from the lips of a Jewish rabbi. I mean, to the Jews of that day, the Samaritans were beyond the pale. They were 
they were nothing like but just dogs and rejects and uh, and yet he is the hero and the priest and the levite in the story did not have compassion the story starts when a, a jewish religious lawyer asked jesus how do i inherit eternal life and and jesus said well you know the law what does it say so he said i would summarize it by saying love for god and love for your neighbor and jesus said, that's right go, go and do it and he said now to justify himself you see because there are all kinds of ways in which religious people can make rules and regulations so they hide their unmerciful and their resentful and hateful nature have you noticed that how sometimes religious pe people can be the most hateful people and they think they're doing God's will so he was trying to justify himself well who is my neighbor and that actually is a great question in uh, all kinds of religious legalism who who do we have to do good to and of course Jesus is saying the person in need is your neighbor not just your family not just your fellow believers he told the story of the good Samaritan you know a man was robbed by the side of the road left for dead and a priest came along wouldn't help him a Levite came along wouldn't help him they were too busy with their religious rituals where they were on duty and then a Samaritan comes and has compassion on him binds up his wounds helps him feeds him takes him to an inn and leaves a blank check saying when uh, come again I, I will pay for all your out-of-pocket expenses and then he asks Jesus asks the religious lawyer which was a neighbor which of these three proved to be a neighbor to this man and he said the one who showed mercy and Jesus said go and do likewise and I invite you to do the same. Let me see if I can give you a mercy test. Are you ready for a mercy test? Maybe it'll come up tomorrow, but you've been through it several times. That irritating person in the office. No, I mean, they're really irritated. Every time they open their mouth, you fume on the insides. I can't stand that person. let's see if you can be patient this week with that person God be with you <laughs> how about that personality change that comes upon you when you get behind the wheel of a car and you've got to be the first always you've got to be in front of everybody else and somebody comes along and cuts you up in front of you and makes you put on your brakes what words come out of your mouth are they blessing or cursing don't answer that <laughs> plead the fifth amendment how about those who are on the periphery, those who are friendless, those maybe whose English is not their first language, maybe whose culture is very different from you, maybe those who are in some particular need, who are hurting. You say, well, I don't know anybody. Open your eyes. They're all around you. Are you prepared to give people a second chance, let alone a 77th chance? Are you prepared to do good to those who hurt you? To offend who offend you? Do you value relationships above rules? Sometimes we can hide, oh, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't go to their house. I mean, they're, they're dirty sinners. What do you mean? They smoke, all right? What else? They swear. What else? They drink beer. What else? Oh, they're just nasty people excuse me excuse me 
Have you forgotten what it's like to be dead in your sins? I find some of the most self-righteous religious people are the worst sinners who now feel that they have dragged themselves into a place of acceptability before God and feel very good about themselves. No. Be merciful. Forgive. And if you do this, friends, some great things are going to happen. You're going to receive mercy. Now, don't, don't expect. This is a warning. Don't expect that if you're merciful to somebody, they're going to be merciful back to you. Don't do it for that reason. It's the wrong reason. It doesn't work. I have this ongoing joke, which is worn a little thin. I might have to change my repertoire, but uh, often I'm in places, as I was in Tunisia, when they were offering me fish, fish for every meal. I don't like fish, so I said, fish are my friends. I won't eat fish. I don't want to go and dive and look at beautiful fish and come up and eat them. And a very, very worldly wise, canny Arab guy who was leading all of this said, what do you think, hey? That if you're in the water, you don't eat the shark. The shark isn't going to eat you. You better eat before you are eaten. <laughs> and there is a truth in that. We can't be naive about this. Sometimes showing mercy is speaking the truth so that somebody else would be protected. It's just, it's just not going into a situation when something has to be corrected from a personal motive of vindictiveness and looking for personal vindication. Certainly, being merciful doesn't mean to say you take the weight of the world upon your shoulders and think that you are the Savior, Jesus is the Savior. You have to, within your own limits, understand your own mental health and your capacity. But, you know, if you are wanting to increase your mental health, according to the Mayo Clinic, kindness and mercy is a good way to go. Kindness has been shown to increase self-esteem, empathy, and compassion, and to improve mood. Listen to this. It can decrease blood pressure and cortisol, a stress hormone which directly impacts your stress levels. But then it goes on to say people who give themselves in a balanced way also tend to be healthier. This doesn't mean that you ignore the wrong. It doesn't mean that you enable behavior. There are times when you need to speak up. There are times when you have to know that what's being said is not about you. What they are doing to you is not about you. It's about them. Hurt people hurt people. Other times you need to know that it is about you. And you can take that away and say, God, help me with it. And at times like that, you remember your own value. And you're not afraid to speak up, but you don't do so out of malice and vindictiveness. And so, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How many people need mercy today? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' wonderful name, we thank you for the goodness, the grace, and the mercy that has been shown to us in Christ. We thank you for that once-for-all gift. We are in Christ. We are in the domain of mercy and grace. Help us to draw from him 
Fresh grace for everyday, everyday living. Fresh mercy for everyday living. Help us, Lord, to take all of this so to heart that we will this week say, I am going to do as many acts of mercy as I can to love Jesus and show him how grateful I am for what he's done for me. And let that mercy speak. And in, or as a result of that, I receive fresh grace and fresh mercy from the living God. Oh,